John chapter 12, verses 20 through 36. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so the crowd answered him. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? And so Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. All right, before we dive in, let's, let's back up and get some context. Figure out where we are in the story. John, John begins by saying, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Now, the feast that John references here is Passover, right? So the, in, in, as we know, J- uh, Jesus celebrated several different Passovers in Jerusalem during his ministry. This particular Passover is the Passover where he's going to die, okay? In just a matter of, of a few days, he's going to be crucified up on that cross for the sins of mankind, okay? And if you were here Last week, uh, Tom Foley, one of our missionaries, was here, and he spoke with us, and he walked us through um, what we call, you know, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? He rides in on the donkey. He rides in this, this pomp and parade, and everybody's, you know, uh, celebrating and so on, and, and it was this that, that began the Passion Week, the, the week leading up to his death. So it's, it's this Passover where we find our story. Now, John doesn't give us the next part of the story after the triumphal entry. He doesn't tell us what happens next, but some of the other gospel writers do. After Jesus comes in on the donkey in this, this big parade, Jesus heads into the temple right in the middle of Jerusalem. Okay? He heads into you know, to this, this Jewish temple, and he walks into this outer courtyard, which we're told in the Bible is a place set apart for the Gentiles. Okay? This was said to be a house of prayer for the nations. It was a place set apart where the Gentiles, Gentiles are non-Jews, right? If you're not a Jew here, you're a Gentile. This is the place where non-Jews, these Gentiles could come and they could seek God and they could experience him and they could meet with him and they could pray to him. But over the years, since God established the, the systems for the temple, over the years, the Jews had hijacked this area of the temple and they had turned it into really a bustling marketplace, and they had, they had uh, you know, set up booths in there, and they set up, you know, salespeople. And what they did was they were, selling, uh, um, they were selling all the different things needed for the sacrifices that God had established. And so they'd, uh, you know, do these booths, and there were these farm animals all over the place, and uh, money changers, and salespeople, you know, kind of crying out for their, you know, for you to buy their goods and so on. Basically, these Jews had come in, and they were... Um, charging these exorbitant prices for these animals. And they were trying to turn a profit on the things of God. 
Use the things of God to turn a profit for their own personal gain. And so Jesus walks into, just think about this for a second. This is the Gentiles' house of prayer. Hardly, hardly a place that's conducive for quieting yourself before the Lord and meeting with him. Am I right? And you got farm animals all around you. All right? Jesus walks into this courtyard and sees what, is, what it has turned into. And I don't know where he finds it, but he finds a whip. And he basically runs out the, the salesman. He basically purifies that, that courtyard, purifies the place. He chases them out of the place saying, this was supposed to be a house of prayer for many nations. You've turned it into a den of robbers. Okay, that, that's the next thing that happens in the story. And so then John tells us, he tells us that now some Greeks want to come and meet with Jesus. We don't know exactly why, but this, this is a bit of speculation on my part, I admit. I think part of the reason why these Gentiles, these Greeks, want to come see Jesus is because what he has just done at the temple. Jesus is an advocate for the Gentiles. He's an advocate for these Greeks. Now, why do I even mention that? Why do I mention that 2,000 years later, you know, a different part of the world? Why is that, have, you know, bear any significance for us? Is that important for us in any way? Absolutely. We have to see this. This is utterly important for you and me because what it means for us is that he cares about outsiders. You know, these Gentiles were considered to be moral outcasts, moral outsiders. They were social outsiders. They were, they were uh, racial outsiders. The Jews believed that, you know, we are the only ones that God, you know, God truly loves. We're the ones that are good enough. All of these pagans, they are beyond the reach of God. God does not love them. Jesus shows up and he is their advocate and he fights for them. He comes in and he removes, he violently removes any obstacle standing in the way of these Gentiles coming and meeting with God, these outsiders come and meet, coming in to meet with God. Jesus picks up a whip and drives off any obstacles. And this kind of typifies, I think, Jesus' mission. Because in just a matter of days, another whip would be used. And it, too, would be used to make a way for outcasts to meet with God. Only this time it would be used on Jesus' back. I mentioned this at the outset of our, of our conversation today because you might be here and you might be feeling like an outsider. You might be feeling like an outcast. Maybe, maybe you're new to, to the whole church thing and maybe you're just feeling like, you know what, I'm here, but I, I don't know enough. I'm not good enough. You should know that some of the things that I've done, okay? I'm an outsider. I don't belong here. Jesus cares deeply about you and he proved it as he cleansed that temple. As he made a way, as he removed the obstacles, he violently removed those obstacles, Jesus cares deeply about you. Maybe you've been here for a long time. Maybe you're struggling with some sin right now. Maybe there's something in your heart that you just cannot get rid of. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's judgmentalism. Maybe it's lust. I don't know what it is, but maybe there's something in you that you just can't seem to conquer. And you just, you, the last thing you feel like right now is a child of God, right? You, you just feel, you know, on the outside, you feel like an outcast. Let me tell you, Jesus is your advocate. He's taken that whip and he is chasing off the things that are standing between you and God. You don't feel connected to God. You feel disconnected. Jesus wants to connect you to God. Like I said, I told, I told you at the outset, I said if you, if you missed the first 33 installments of this series and you're here for the first time today, you came on a great day. Because if maybe, maybe some of this stuff is new to you. Maybe, maybe this is, you know, you don't know a whole lot. You don't feel like you're, you're where you need to be. Jesus basically lays out here in our passage the most fundamental, foundational elements of uh, his mission, what he's about, his teaching and his mission. He basically tells these Greeks that want to come and see him, basically tells these Greeks, in my, in my opinion of the story, he basically says, you want to meet me? You want, you want to know who I am? You want to know what I'm about? Okay, here's who it is. 
here's who I am and what I must do. Here's how you must respond. And here's the motivation. I think those, if we were to sum up these 16 verses, I think we could do it in those three ways. Here's what I must do. Here's how you must respond. And here's the motivation behind it. I think he says these three things. and I want to point these things out. What is Jesus' mission? What is our response? And what is the motivation? So first, let's look at Jesus' mission. I think he summed it up really well in verse 31. He says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I want to look at both of those statements one at a time. He first says, now is the judgment of this world. And maybe you're here thinking, yikes, we're talking about judgment. Okay? Um, you know, you may be thinking, well, that doesn't make sense because I remember us talking about another place in, the, you know, in John where Jesus says, you know, God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And now he's talking about judgment. Which is it, Jesus? You're going to judge us or you're not going to judge us? You're going to condemn us, you're going to not condemn us. Um, it's important for us to see that the word world, world, can mean a couple of different things depending on how it's used. When, for example, when Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, the word, word world is referencing people because he says that whoever would believe in him would not perish, right? He's talking about people. But in this uh, when the word is used here, there's a different connotation. He's referencing, I believe, the systems of the world, the values of the world. I, I think what he's saying is now, is, now it comes the judgment of the values of the world. My death, my cross is going to bring judgment, cast judgment on the values of this world. Consider the value system of the world that we live in for one moment. Here's the way our world thinks. I'm borrowing this from somebody because he summed it up so well. The way up is up. That's the way our world thinks. The way up is up. Here's what, here's what I mean. The, the prize goes to the mighty. The spoils go to the strong. You want to get to the top, you claw your way up there. Okay? You, you, you dress for the job. If you want power, you got to show yourself, you got you to show that you are powerful. That's the way that our world operates. If you want power, you show that you are powerful. And this fleshes itself out really clearly here in this passage. In verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And a lot of you know here that when Jesus is making this reference to the Son of Man, he's talking about a, a messianic prophecy given in Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, uh, Daniel lays out this vision that he has about these kingdoms. And some of the kingdoms are currently, you know, uh, you know, reigning some of you know Assyrians and the Babylonians and so on. But there's he's also talking about some of the coming kingdoms. So he talks about the Medes and the Persians, and he talks about Philip of Macedonia. He talks about Philip's son Alexander the Great and the Greeks, and I think he even references the Romans that are to come. Okay, he's giving these prophecies about these coming kingdoms. And Daniel, what he does is he likens these kingdoms to animals. And I think the reason why he does it is because these empires are so vicious and brutal and savage. Okay, and but then he says, you know, but then there's going to be this this other kingdom, then this new kingdom will come, and this kingdom will be unending. It will be everlasting. It will be eternal. And this kingdom won't be, you know, animalistic and savage like these others. He says this kingdom will be ushered in. He doesn't liken, it, you know, liken this new kingdom to an animal at all. He, he says this kingdom is going to be ushered in by the Son of Man. Okay? And, and, and then for hundreds of years then, these Jews are you know, talking about the, this son of man, and they're speculating about what he might be, and they're fantasizing about, okay, this son of man's going to come, and he's going to come flex his muscles, and he's going to strap on his sword, and he's going to raise up an army, and he's going to come in political power, and military power, and financial power, and he's going to set up his throne that will be unending. 
Okay, and so they're waiting for this great son of man that they assume is going to come like all of these other you know, empires coming in power and strength. And so then you get Jesus, 2,000 years ago, who, who, who you know, gets you know, public life, public ministry, gets on the scene, and his popularity starts to rise. And people start to ask, I wonder if this is the Messiah. I wonder if this is him. I wonder if this is the son of man. And, and you know, his popularity is rising, and then it, you know, eventually he rides into Jerusalem. We talked about it last week. He rides into Jerusalem with this pomp and this parade and this celebration, and everybody's crying out, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna's a battle cry, meaning, Lord, save us. This is him. And then just within a day or two later, Jesus stands in front of this crowd of Jews and Greeks, and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Can you, can you imagine, you know, the excitement and, and, and the, just the celebration that's happening now is the, the, the Jews must be thinking, it's come, finally, raise up the army, put on your swords. Here we go. We're, we're going to fight off this foreign oppression, this Roman oppression, that the time is finally here because this is the way the world thinks. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you. And by the way, remember when he says, truly, truly, I say to you. That means listen up, right? This is his way of saying, what I'm about to say to you is absolutely trustworthy. It is true, and it is of the utmost importance. It's critical. And so he's saying, listen up close. We need to listen close as well. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it remains alone, and it cannot bear fruit. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and unless I die and am buried nothing will happen. Unless I die and I am buried, I cannot bear fruit. I mean, the crowd must have gone from like this elation to like just utter confusion. What? Death? You're going to die? That's not the plan. This contradicted everything they believed about the mission of the Messiah. It contradicted everything they believed about power and honor and victory. Jesus says, I am going to be glorified. I am the Son of Man. I am going to be glorified. I am the Messiah. I am going to establish the kingdom. But it's not going to, be come, by, it's not going to come by me taking up power. It's going to come by me laying down my power. It's not going to be come by me taking up my rights. It comes by me laying down my rights. It's not, I'm not coming to take up a crown. I'm coming to lay down my crown. Jesus says, now is the judgment of the world. Jesus says, the way I plan to win is by being defeated. The way I gain victory is by losing. The way that I will be glorified is through humility. The way to have life is to die. So again, I come back to, here's the major idea of this passage. Our world says the way up is up. Jesus says, no, the way up is down. The way up is down. And if we can get that, not... We'll understand the essence of what it means to become a Christian and what it means to live the Christian life. Friends, the way up is down. So contrary to everything we're taught in, in our society, the world says if you want power, you've got to fight for it. If you want to get to the top, you've got to claw your way up there. But Jesus says the opposite. He says you want your life, you lose it. If you want power, then give it away. If you want honor, then serve. And again, there's no, no greater uh, picture of this than the cross. Here's a man, the son of man, without military power, without political power, without financial power. You know, the only followers that Jesus was able to, to wrangle up were the illiterate peasants. The only possessions that he owned were the clothes on his back. That's what, was, that's what they cast lots for. 
right? The clothes on his back. He, he's, he has a public ministry of a whopping three years. Three years. And he's executed at a, at a, at a really young age, executed at the age of somewhere around 33. And when he is, every single one of his friends abandon him. You know, hardly, hardly the success story. But not, not despite those things, but because of those things, Jesus becomes the most influential person in the history of the world. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, he ushered in the kingdom of God. And, when, and think about it. When a new kingdom is established, we even know this within our own government, when a new administration is brought into our government, when a new administration is established, a whole, we not only get new leaders, we get new policies, we get new direction, we get new goals, we get new values. When a new kingdom is ushered in, the old is gone and the new comes. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God and everything was reversed. Jesus hanging on that cross brought judgment on the world's values. I heard somebody say that the world thought when they hung Jesus up on that cross, they were condemning him. But Jesus is actually saying that God is condemning the world. So let's think for a second. Let's get practical. What does that mean for you and me? Well, here's just a real simple example. This is something I've been convicted in this week. Okay? Parents. Is the primary message that we are teaching our children, is it this? Work hard. Get as much knowledge as you can. Get as much power as you can. You know, get, get into that good college. Get the best job you possibly can. Make the money you can. Get as much security as you possibly can. And then, maybe then, you'll be able to make an impact in society. Is that the primary message that we're teaching our children? Work hard. Get into a good school. Get a good job. Make as much money as you can. Get as much security as you possibly can. Then you can make an impact in society. Are, all of those, are any of those things bad? No. Get a good job. Get a great job. A job you love. A job that pays you well. Okay, go to school. I'm, I'm working on another degree right now. I'm in school. I'm not condemning school. But is that the primary message that you're teaching your kids? Or is the primary message that you're, you're teaching your kids, you know, live humbly and sacrificially for the glory of God? Is that the primary message that we're teaching our kids? Live humbly, live sacrificially, radically generous for the, for the glory of God. Are we teaching our kids make as much money as you can or give away as much money as you can? Are we teaching our kids gain as much knowledge and power as you possibly can or are we teaching them love and serve? Are we saying lay down your power as much as you can for the sake of others? Is it get as much power? Is it lay down your power for the sake of others? Because that, that, those are the values of the kingdom of God. You realize when we pray in our homes, uh, you know, we, we pray the Lord's Prayer. Part of the Lord's Prayer is may your kingdom come, Right? May your kingdom come. When we echo those prayers of Jesus, do you know what we're asking for? We're saying, God, God, we want your values, your policies, your direction, your leadership in our home. We're asking God to to give us a reversal of from what the world says. I mean, that's what we teach our kids, but what about us? What about us? When we look at the central aim of our life, is it to get as much as we can or is it to give as much as we can? Is it to get as much as we can or to give as much as we can? We're not called to gain and we're called to lay down our power. We're not called to, 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 to protect our rights. We're called to lay down our rights. This is what Jesus did on the cross. And these are the values of the kingdom of God. 
A strong God made himself weak for the sake of others. That's it. That sums it up. A strong God made himself weak for the sake of others. May we do the same. Okay, that's the first part of the statement. Uh, Now is the judgment of this world. Now look at the second part of the statement. He says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And this is such a powerful statement. I love this. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Um, And you might be thinking, well, that doesn't make sense because, you know, Paul and the others, they wrote, you know, Satan is present and active, resist the devil, all that. How can Jesus say, you know, they wrote that after the cross. So how can Jesus say, now will the ruler of the world be cast out? Okay, here's what he means. He means exactly what he said, in fact. He means exactly what he said. Satan was defeated at the cross. Satan was defeated at the cross. No, it's not the final defeat, but it is the victory that secures and guarantees Satan's final defeat. On the cross, Jesus, please listen. On the cross, Jesus stripped Satan of the one powerful weapon that he had. You know what that was? Legitimate accusation of unforgiven sin. He had one weapon that could damn us. Legitimate accusation of unforgiven sin. And that weapon was ripped out of the hands of Satan as Jesus you know, hung on that cross. If, if you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have no unforgiven sin. That's a foundational truth, you know, Christian truth, absolutely fundamental for us to get as, as Christians. But isn't it so hard? Isn't that one of the most difficult things for us to live in each and every day? If you are a Christian, if you have received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have no unforgiven sin. Satan's been disarmed. That's why in Revelation chapter, chapter 12, it says that Satan was conquered by the blood of the Lamb. He was conquered by the blood of the lamb. This is why Jesus had to die. Jesus said, he said, unless the seed is buried, it cannot bear fruit. It will remain alone. Jesus is saying, basically, unless I die for you, unless I go to the cross and I die for you, I will be the only one who can have a relationship with the Father. I'll be the only one who can enjoy an intimate, loving relationship with the Father. I will remain alone in that great gift, that great privilege Sure, I could avoid the cross. I can walk away from the cross. But that means that your sin still separates you. If I am to bear fruit, I must be buried. And this is an issue that a lot of people have with Christianity. Many of us have friends that really have a lot of problems with this. Um, I talked to a a guy uh, yesterday morning. I was working at a coffee shop very, very early, and I got in a conversation with the owner of the coffee shop. I really had a problem with this part of aspect of Christianity, the aspect of Christianity. Right, um, you know, he he. This is this was kind of his story, but uh, we know a lot of people who say, you know, we appreciate Jesus, we like Jesus. He had lots of great things to say. We we even appreciate the cross. What a great example of of living a life of sacrifice and living a life of self giving love. But you know, this whole thing, you know, dying for my sins, like it was necessary for him to die for my sins. That seems a little archaic, a little over the top, a little overly dramatic. After all, I'm a pretty good person. I do my best, and God sees that. Okay. The mentality is, I'm not that bad, and God's not that mad. I'm not that bad, and God's not that mad. And friends, the message of the Bible is clear. We, we read it in the Old Testament, we read it in the New. Our sins separate us from a holy God. Every one of us, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible says. We've all done things that dishonor Him. 
and God is just. You know, he can't just look the other way, you know, and pretend that our sin didn't happen. And if we think about it, it makes total, complete sense. Can, can any of us imagine a judge who has somebody who stands in front of them, who, you know, who you know, stabbed somebody to death, right? And everybody knows that that person is guilty. The judge knows that that person is guilty. But he says, well, you said you're sorry. You know, you said you'd try not to do it again. Um, all right, you can go free. No consequences. What would happen in our nation, if that, if that took place, our nation would be in an uproar. I mean, there'd be, there'd be riots in the streets. Where is the justice, right? Our cities would be in flames over that. Do we think that our God is any less just than our own justice systems? God is just. We have sinned. We have committed crimes against God. There, there are consequences for our sins. And the Bible says that the wages of our sin is death separation from God for eternity. That's the bad news, but here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus loves us, and he went to the cross, and he took the consequences. He took the punishment for my sin and for your sin. Every ounce of justice for my crimes was paid by Jesus. On the cross, again, this is another one of those just fundamental truths that it's so just... Every once in a while, he just opens your mind to see just the the beautiful reality of this. But listen, on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he had done everything that I've ever done. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if he did everything that I've ever done. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins have been done away with. And if that weren't enough, Jesus, Jesus says here in, in our passage, Jesus says that for his followers, that not only will they receive no condemnation, but they'll actually receive honor from the Father. So, so here, here's the reality. This is the good news of the gospel. Um, like I said, Jesus was treated as if he did everything that I've ever done. In other words, my debt was transferred to his account, and he paid it. But at the same time, Jesus takes his uh, his riches and his righteousness and his goodness and transfers it to my account. And, and now I'm treated as if I've done everything that Jesus has done. That's the good news of the gospel. And if you stop and think about that, well, what does Jesus deserve? Think of his goodness and his beauty and his righteousness and his, his obedience. And he shares that with me. Think of the love and the honor and the glory and the delight and the affections that he deserves from the Father. And Jesus says, I'm sharing it with you. You're co-heirs with Christ. That's what the Bible says. We're co-heirs with Christ. This is the beauty of the cross. Paul talked about, you know, some people are going to find it offensive. But, you know, when, when Jesus says that I'm going to be lifted up and I'm going to draw all men to myself, you know what he's saying? He's actually kind of making fun of, he, he's, he's being ironic because you know, do you know why they hoisted him up on the cross like that? Public? They're making a public spectacle of him, right? They're, they're making an example out of Jesus. They're thinking, this is what happens when you challenge the powers that be. You'll end up like this one. But, when Je- but what Jesus says is, when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all men to myself. You know, you, 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 don't, you don't become a Christian by being driven to Jesus. You, come a, you become a Christian by being drawn to Jesus. When you see the beauty of the cross, you know what the beauty of the cross is? The beauty of the cross just gives us the... the, the, the paints a picture of the glory of God. The, the cross says that, that we have a God that is so holy and so just that he had to die. It was the only way. But the cross also shows us that he was so loving and that we are so valued that he was glad to die. 
That's the gospel. That's the picture that we have of our God. It's beautiful. It draws men. This is the mission of Jesus, to judge the values of the world as he disarms Satan. So what is our response? By the way, that was by far the longest point. It's going to go a lot faster from here. So what is our response? What's our response to this? Verse 26, Jesus says, Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. In other words, he's saying, if you want to be my follower, you will be where I am. Where is he talking about? The cross. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. He's telling us to die. He's calling us to die. Just as a strong God made himself weak to save us, if we want to be saved, we too must become weak. A Christian is somebody who has humbled themselves, acknowledged their weakness, recognized their need for a Savior, repented of their sins, and placed their faith in Jesus. A Christian is, is somebody not, who not only acknowledges their weakness, you know, is made weak one day for one decision, for one commitment, for one prayer, but a Christian is now somebody who lives now within this, this new value system, within this new kingdom of God. Their, their, their values have been flipped upside down. They live in a new economy. The values of our world say, again, elevate yourself, get to the top however you need to. Claw your way up if you need to. The highest values in our world are self-preservation and self-advancement. But Jesus rejects it, and he calls his followers to reject it. He says, if you want honor, then you serve. If you want treasures, then you give your money away. If you want true life, then you lose it. If you want to bear fruit, you've got to be buried. So let me ask you the question that's been rolling through my mind all week. What needs to die in my life that I might bear fruit? What needs to die? I know, by the way, if you're new here, we have fall fest. This is a great chance to invite friends and neighbors. If you are new here today, and our whole, time is, our whole talk is about death today. I'm sorry. Uh, Roxy made a good comment. She's like, well, it's Halloween. You know. Um, it's, it's, but this is about death. What, what is, is there anything in your life that needs to die that you might bear fruit? What needs to be killed in your life that you might bear fruit? And some of you might be thinking, well, that doesn't make sense. Philip, you just said Jesus died for our sins in my place. What do you mean I have to die? Well, in one sense, you'd raise a very good point. <laughs> Here's what the Bible teaches. If you are a Christian, if you place your faith in Jesus, not only has Jesus died, but you have died with him. Past tense. You've died with him. When we place our faith in Jesus, we are spiritually united with him in his death on the cross and in his resurrection. It's, it's as if our old self was hanging on the cross with Jesus. Okay? That's what the Bible teaches. Colossians 3 says it like this. Paul says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That's past tense. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. But you know, two verses later, do you know what Paul says? Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Isn't that funny? You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly within you. You've died, now start dying, is what he says. What God has done for us, he wants to work out of us, right? Paul says that we are to work out our salvation, work it out. The idea here is when, you, you know, when you're making cookies and you throw butter in the mix and you, know, and you take your spatula or you take your little KitchenAid or whatever and, and, and you... you you, know, you want to mix it all in so that the butter is evenly distributed among the mix, right? Among the batter. You want the whole thing affected by that butter. This is the idea. Our new identity in Christ is not just, 
you know, a little compartment of our life, nor is it something that we just kind of put in our back pocket, and when we stand before the throne of God, we whip it out like it's some letter of recommendation, like, hey, Jesus wrote me a letter, and he said I can come in. No, this is something that is, is, is to sift through every aspect of our life today. Today. Our marriages, our relationships, our finances, our time, our hobbies, everything. We've got to mix it all in, work it out, work it through, knead it in. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. Now put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. So I ask the question again. Actually, I'm going to ask you three questions here. John Piper put these, put these questions up in light of our passage today. I'm going to just ask you his questions. This is what's been really been convicting me. What needs to die in my life that I might bear more fruit? I asked you that one. What needs to die in my life that I might bear more fruit? Am I striving against my very nature as a Christian by trying to keep alive something that God has already sentenced to death? Let me, let me say that again. Am I striving against my very nature as a Christian by trying to keep alive something that God has already sentenced to death? And the last one is, are my weaknesses as a father or as a husband or as a Christian witness owing to something that needs to die in me? Maybe it's an old habit. Maybe it's some secret sin. Um, maybe it's some, some fear that I have, some desperate need for approval, right? Some desperate you know, desire for success or, or, or status or wealth. Is there something in me that needs to die? This is the third and final point. We close here. What is our motivation? Why should I die? I mean, that's, that's painful. It's hard. Why should I give it up? Why should I live a life of sacrifice? Why should I live radically generous for the sake of others? Why, why should I give of myself? Why should I live for others instead of me? Why? Well, the answer, of course, is the same for why Jesus did what he did. Why did Jesus do what he did? He tells us here in verse 28. By the way, right after he openly confesses that the difficulty of what he's about to accomplish. He says, my soul is troubled. John doesn't, John doesn't give us the account at the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay? This, it, it's right here that we see really the, the humanity of Jesus. His, his fear and his terror over what's to come on the cross. And I've, had, I've actually talked to some people who really kind of condemn Jesus for this part. They're like, man, he really choked you know, at the end. You know, he really, he, you know, where, where was his courage? Where was the courage of Jesus? You know, and, and the fact is, think about it. If you, look, if you look at history, we have all kinds of accounts of martyrs, people dying for their faith. And, and they died, some might say, bear with me, let me finish, uh, with a little bit better rapport than Jesus did. You know, he, he says, my soul is troubled. Do you know what that word troubled means? He, this is the word he used in Garden of Gethsemane as well. He said, uh, it, it means overcome with horror. This isn't just like, yeah, I'm kind of bothered by it. He's overcome with horror. He said in the garden to the point of death. He thought he might die just from trepidation, right? What, why, did, why was it so difficult for Jesus? He, you know, he was this man, this man of great you know, poise and, and character, and he stood up against the Pharisees and the religious leaders and all of these things. He, you know, he, he stood against so many things. Why, why now? Like, why, what happened? Well, the fact is, his, his death was not like all of these other martyr, you know, these other deaths, Jesus said in the garden, he said, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. What cup is he talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, all over the place, he's talking about the cup is the cup of God's wrath. He's not just facing physical death. 
He's facing the wrath of God, and he's going to drink every last drop. He's going to be forsaken by God for the first time in all of eternity. He's going to, you know, you know, again, take the punishment that I deserve. Remember, this, our sins separate us from a holy God. That's our punishment for our sins. Jesus was separated from the Father. That's why he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And you, and you think about it. We've talked about this before that, you know, if I, uh, somebody walked in sitting here for the first time, they just really just did not for whatever reason, like me, right? And like, they walked in the parking lot, somebody says hi to him out there, and like, man, I want nothing to do with Philip. I just reject him completely. I, I, I'm not going to come into the same room as the guy, right? For whatever reason. And the person in the parking lot comes and says, man, you won't believe what this guy just said. He you know, tells me, like, I'd be bummed to hear that. That'd be, that'd be a bummer to hear that. i think, what did I just do? Um, but within a few hours, maybe a day or two, I'd be over it. But what if, you know, because the guy's a stranger. But what if a friend rejected me? What if somebody that, that, I, that I knew really well just said, you know, Philip, for whatever reason, I just, man, I just, I never want to be in the same room as you again. I don't want to talk to you anymore. Like, that'd be really hard. That'd be, that'd be harder, right? What if a parent says that to you? You're dead to me. I'm done with you. I mean, that's almost unbearable. What if your spouse says that to you? I'm, I'm done. I'm out. Walk away. I mean, that's hard to, to, that's hard to cope, and that's hard to, to, to go another day, right? It's hard to get out of bed in the morning. How, how do you even do that, right? The, the deeper the relationship, the, the more painful the rejection, right? We, we'd all agree with that? Now, consider for a moment the relationship that Jesus has with the Father. Consider the relationship. You know, they, they, they have deeper, more, you know, uh, intimate, loving relationship than we can ever even comprehend. For eternity past, the, the, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have been living together in this perfect fellowship, this perfect relationship, and the Son is about to be ripped from the fellowship with the Father. He's about to be completely stripped of that relationship, and he's terrified. He is overcome with horror to the point of death. Right? Talk about the pain that he's about to experience. He says, my soul is troubled. Yeah, you can understand why. My soul is troubled. And he, and he says, but, you know, but what would I say? Father, you know, save me from this? Take me away from this? No. It's for this reason I, I came. And so he sets his face to the cross, regardless of the, the, the tremendous amount of pain and, and, and sorrow this is going to bring him. He sets his face to the cross, and here's what he says. Father, glorify your name. That's his motivation. Father, glorify your name. The glory of God. This must be our motivation as well. Do you remember what glory is? Glory, the basic definition of glory is weight. W-E-I-G-H-T, weight. Uh, glory is not just physical weight. It also means, you know, significance or importance, its impact. You know, it, it weighs a lot, in, you know, in our mind or in our heart. Okay? A good synonym we've said in the past, a good synonym for the word glory is matter. Okay? You know, because matter has several layers to it too. You know, matter, there's, there's the physical substance of matter, right? You know, it's not immaterial, it's matter. Um, but matter also means significance, right? Impact. You know, it, it, something matters or something doesn't matter. So to ascribe glory to someone or to something is to say that this person or this thing matters. It matters. So, for example, let me give you an illustration here. Let's say that you've got a problem, uh, you've got a decision to make, you have no idea what you're supposed to do, and so you decide, I'm going to call these three people. You know, uh, you're going to call a couple of peers, but then you're going to call this one other person, this third person, and you're, in the back of your mind, you just know 
because of whatever, maybe you've just got this deep respect for this person, this, you know, some deep uh, you know, respect for maybe their background or some relationship you have or their, their personal experience within this kind of problem. You just know that when you talk to this person, whatever that person says, you're going to do it, right? You just have, you, you know, so you, you talk to other people, but when you hear this one person's voice, you know, you, you're, that's what I'm, I'm going to do. You know what you've done? You've ascribed glory to that person's opinion, Okay. You've given weight to it. It matters more. It holds greater significance. And every one of us uh, give glory to someone or to something. A Christian is someone who has seen that God is the most important, the most significant, that the weightiest, the thing that matters the most in his life or her life. You follow me? A Christian is someone who has ascribed to God the glory due his name. Can that be said of you today? Is your life ascribing to God the glory due his name? Frankly, it's, it's as simple as this. Whose opinion matters most to you? You know, who, whose voice holds the most weight? Whose voice matters the most? So you can say, well, the world tells me to do this. Gain as much security, you know, gain as much riches, do all of these different things. And God says, no, give up. Give up your, lay down your life and you lose it. Whose voice has the greatest, it has the greatest volume in your life? And this is the reason why we can endure the sacrifice. This is the reason why we can lay down our life is because we acknowledge that the glory of God outweighs anything else in the world. And if God's glory wasn't motivation enough, and it is, don't get me wrong, if it was not motivation enough, he even promises us that when we do let these things die in our life, we will become who we were meant to be. In other words, when we become weak, he will make us strong. It's only by becoming weak that we can be made strong. Paul summed it up like this. He said, these light, momentary afflictions, and Paul knew something about afflictions, didn't he? These these daily deaths, these light, momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For those who are willing to die, this this is what awaits us. They are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let me finish our time with one short reading. Um, when I was thinking through this week about what it meant to die, my mind immediately went to The Great Divorce. Uh, the, the Great Divorce is a book, by the way, by C.S. Lewis. The Great Divorce uh, is probably my favorite book that Lewis ever wrote. And it's this little fictional story uh, about this busload of ghosts that basically take a day trip um, to the outskirts of heaven. Okay? They, they take a day trip. To, they're going to go to the little foothills there and up in the mountains. It's, it's you know, the... the, the kingdom of God, okay? And so they come out to these little outskirts of heaven, and uh, the narrator within the book tells us about, you know, ghost after ghost after ghost that, you know, gets out of the bus and walks around and meets with these angels that have come down from the mountains to meet them in the outskirts, and, and the angels, you know, try to help them into heaven. They offer them heaven freely, but each ghost basically argues their way out of it because each of the ghosts has something that they can't take with them, you know, that they need to repent of, that they just refuse to let die. And so basically, you know, Lewis's point is basically all who are in hell choose it. One of his premises of that book. They, they choose hell because they'd rather, they'd rather keep this thing rather than going to heaven and being with God. They choose hell. And so every single one of the ghosts, I mean, it's really frustrating to read. You're like, come on, you know, let it go, right? Except this one. There's one uh, ghost that, that lets it die. I want to read you just a couple little uh, excerpts from that little story. Okay? And this is just a little bit of a paraphrase because of our time. Um, there's this the ghost, we were told, has this little red lizard sitting on his shoulder. Okay? And uh, um, I think in the context of the story, the little red lizard re- uh, represents lust in this man's life. 
Now, that may not be your struggle. That happened to be, I think, this man's struggle. Um, but regardless, I think we can all relate with the battle that happens here. This is what uh, Lewis basically writes. He says, I saw coming toward us a ghost who was looking longingly toward heaven, and an angel came down to try to meet him. The ghost had a little red lizard on his shoulder, and the lizard didn't want to go. So the ghost turned around very sadly to leave. The angel called out and said, hey, why are you leaving so soon? Come back. The ghost says, well, this little fellow here really doesn't want to go in that direction, so I can't. And the angel says, well, would you like me to make him quiet? The ghost said, well, that would be a relief. That would be great. Okay, then I'll kill him, said the angel. Oh, wait, you didn't say anything about killing it. Well, it's the only way. May I kill it? Uh, well, let's discuss that. No, 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 there's no time. May I kill it? Oh, you know what? Look, it's gone to sleep. I'm sure it won't be any trouble anymore. <laughs> yes, it will. May I kill it? Well, you know what? I, I think the gradual process is always better than, no, the gradual process is of no use at all. May I kill it? Well, if you kill it, will it kill me too? No. But even if it did, well, yeah, you're right. Even death would be better than living with this thing. Wait, get back. You're hurting me. You didn't tell me it would hurt me. Well, I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I just said it wouldn't kill you. May I kill it? Look, you know, let me run back by tonight's bus. Let me go get an opinion from my own doctor, and then I'll come back to you the very first moment that I can. No, this moment contains all moments. May I kill it? The lizard began chattering to the ghost so loudly now that everybody could hear what it was saying. He can do it. He can kill me. And then what would you do without me? I, I get it. I admit I've, been, you know, I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I'll never do it again. I'll be very good. May I kill it, said the angel. Oh, just do it. Just get it over with, cried the ghost. God help me. God help me. The angel grabbed hold of the lizard and broke its neck and threw it down. The ghost screamed, and then two amazing things happened. First of all, the ghost stopped being ghostly and became radiant and gorgeous and bright and real, a human being, a man. But then the body of the red lizard, instead of disappearing, grew into a beautiful and powerful white horse. The text went on, When the new-made man arose, I thought that his face was shining with tears, but it might have only been the liquid love and brightness that flowed from him now. And in joyous haste, the man leaped on the horse's back, and they were off like a shooting star on the green plain, and they were soon to the mountains. Still, like a star, I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps, quicker every moment until at the brow of the landscape, so high that I strained my neck to see them. They vanished into the brightness of that everlasting morning. These light, momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Amen? We're going to move now into a time of communion. And this is a great opportunity for us um, to do some self-analysis, to really ask God to search our heart. What needs to die in you today that you might have life? What needs to be buried that you might have fruit? Do you have a lizard on your I have a lizard on my shoulder. I'll just tell you right now. I have a lizard on my shoulder. And this week I've been asking God to kill it. Do you have a lizard on your shoulder? And what if Jesus wants to kill it today? Will you let him do it? Or actually, why don't you come on up? <clears throat>